Welcome to the South Bank Walk. We'll be taking you from Somerset House on the Strand, across Waterloo Bridge, down to the new Millennium Bridge, where we will go back across the river towards St Paul's Cathedral, and then through the city and back to the LSE. A couple of words of caution. You're being broken into small groups and will be given start times to begin. You need to remain at a distance of two metres from one another. If you're distanced at only one metre, you must wear a mask. Finally, London is a city and has a good bit of traffic from buses, cars, bikes and taxis. You need to be careful when crossing the road and you need to remember that we drive on the other side of the road and that most of you won't be used to this. The traffic will be approaching you from your left, so please look left before you step into the road. Stop A. You are now standing in the courtyard of Somerset House on the north side of the river. The space is public and in the summer hosts outdoor film events and in the winter it has an ice skating rink. But not that long ago, up until the late 1990s, this was a civil service car park. Nowadays it seems extraordinary that there would be such a large space dedicated to parking cars in central London. At the time, however, we were all just coming to grips with the idea that these sorts of spaces provided amazing opportunities for residents and tourists in the city. It's worth having a pause here for a moment and thinking about how public spaces can be provided in existing cities. What other sites might offer possibilities? Stop B. During the period of industrialization, the South Bank was mainly a place of docks, power generation and industries where the working class settled. During World War II, the capital saw a great deal of devastation due to aerial bombardments which tore much of the city apart. A great deal of this destruction was focused on the South Bank as the warehouses and docklands were considered to be vital to the war effort. This left much of the area devastated. In 1943, a regeneration plan was made for the South Bank, formulated by Patrick Abercrombie, an, eventual, an influential planning academic, and London's municipal architect, John Forshaw. The project proposed a more modern, less polarised city in which the South Bank would provide a shared space for all Londoners away from the pressures of business where they could unite around art and culture. His plan would not thoroughly be realised. However, it did leave an important heritage, the 1951 Festival of Britain, which was to present a strong image of London after World War II, a sort of place marketing activity designed to present London to the world much like the Olympic Games are used today. The Festival of Britain was fundamental in creating the entertainment use you see here. As you walk today, look around you and think about the entertainment uses that started here and have slowly crept down the south side of the river. Do you think this has met the goal of providing a shared space for all Londoners to enjoy? Stop C. You are now located at the Undercroft Skate Park. The open space situated below these brutalist buildings was informally appropriated by skateboarders in the 1970s. In fact, this space was not designed to be a skate park, but rather it's a found space, later also adopted by street artists and other urban subcultures. The South Bank Centre, over the course of the years, has actively limited the spaces that skaters could use, also by installing physical barriers between pedestrians and the park. In 2013, 
the South Bank Centre presented a £120 million redevelopment plan that involved the refurbishment of existing buildings and the installation of a floating glass pavilion that would be used and would have been able to accommodate a full rehearsing orchestra. In order to proceed with this redevelopment, the skate park needed to be moved elsewhere, and South Bank Centre proposed to situate it underneath the Hungerford Bridge. As a reaction, the Undercroft Skaters founded a non-profit community organisation called Long Live South Bank to combat the redevelopment plan and refusing to relocate. After 17 months of legal battles, Long Live South Bank and the South Bank Centre came to an agreement to keep the skate park in its place, with the South Bank Centre recognising its historic and community value. Additionally, Field and Clegg Bradley Studios was commissioned to refurbish the skate park by South Bank Centre. They reopened parts of the park that had been closed off since 2004. They replicated the original brutalist, brutalist architecture, placing obstacles in their original spots. The Undercoff Skate Park, as you see it today, was completed in 2019. The questions we have for you here are, what value do you think South Bank Centre has seen in the Undercroft Skate Park? And to what extent should we be guided by the market in land use decisions? Stop D, the National Theatre and IBM. As you can see, we're standing in front of the Brutalist National Theatre designed by Dennis Lanston and completed in 1976. In fact, the cultural and entertainment sector were a contributing factor in the shaping of South Bank redevelopment. This renovation has had a strong impact on the area in terms of population and land value. The uplift in value and popularity can be seen in the building next to the National Theatre. It's the headquarters of IBM, also designed by Lanston and completed in 1983. The current owners of the building, a Dubai-based group, and its architects, AHMM, proposed to extend the building to offer IBM more space and to provide shops on the ground level. All of this may seem very sensible in terms of space use, with rising land values and a strong retail economy. However, development is often balanced by other factors in planning. In the UK, an important one is heritage. In June 2020, the UK government acted in, in line with advice from Historic England and awarded the building Grade 2 statutory protection. This means that any redevelopment now will have to go through a stricter route, ensuring that the historic fabric of the building is respected. The art of planning is about balancing one outcome against another. Here we are trying to allow for economic growth while maintaining the look and feel and history of a building. Planning is therefore about blocking the full force of the market. And the question for you here is that appropriate? Stop E. Another bridge. There's been a long-standing plan to add another bridge in London, connecting the South Bank to Temple. It was first proposed by Patrick Abercrombie in his post-war vision of London. Then, in the early 1980s, architect Richard Rogers, who designed the Millennium Dome, Heathrow Terminal 5, and Neo Bankside, which you will see later in the walk, proposed a development at Coin Street, which advanced a similar suggestion. More recently, a new bridge has been proposed, 
this time designed by Thomas Heatherwick and supported by the actress Joanna Lumley, who you may know from Absolutely Fabulous or, if you're my age, The Avengers. The bridge gained a great deal of public support from the mayor, Boris Johnson, who gave the go-ahead for the renovation of Temple's tube station to allow for direct connection to the bridge. The bridge was intended to be funded by raising over £140 million of private money, including charitable gift aid, and £60 million of promised public money. However, if you look around you, you'll see that it didn't go ahead. Why? As with many urban projects, policy, politics and public approval changed. Londoners no longer saw the bridge as something for residents, but rather something for tourists, and financing for the project had started to become far trickier. The need for public money had been revised upward from £60 million to £200 million by April 2017, and the Garden Bridge Trust had lost two major donors, which took their funding pledges down to £69 million. The bridge had become to be viewed as a white elephant, that is, a troublesome, difficult and needlessly expensive project, and with the election of Labour Mayor Sadiq Khan and a report on the bridge by MP Margaret Hodge, which indicated even more cost to the public purse, Khan cancelled the project. So here we have a dilemma. Boris Johnson saw the bridge as an opportunity, Sadiq Khan saw it as a waste of public money. In designing the city, where do you think the balance should be put? Should we consider at an international scale for London as a world city and a tourist attraction? Do we need to think more locally about the residents? Is it possible to balance the two? These are incredibly important questions when we consider how to plan the city and how to finance things like public space and transport. So I'd encourage you to pause here and think about this dilemma and imagine if you were the mayor of London, what solution would you choose? Stop F. Air rights. One way to increase the number of affordable housing units in cities is to allow people to develop upwards using permissive airspace regulation. However, in London, this is not as simple as it may sound. The city has a number of designated views that include panoramas, river views, townscape views, and linear, linear views. Here, the linear views are of particular importance as they control the height of any building within the corridor. So, for example, there is a view that extends from King Henry VIII's Mound in Richmond all the way through to St Paul's Cathedral. In practice, this means that if you are standing on top of the mound in Richmond, you can peer through the little telescope that's there and see St Paul's. Perhaps for the beauty and uniqueness of the city, this is a wonderful planning tool. However, it does mean that space the city has to build in is constrained. Potentially, there may be some loosening of the airspace regulation as London Mayor Sadiq Khan has provided a £10 million development loan to a company called Airspace Apex to develop new affordable homes within London's airspace. They predict that they could provide 180,000 new homes in this way. Think here about how and where we can provide affordable housing in unaffordable cities. Stop G, Coin Street. Coin Street is a rather unique experience in the British planning history. This piece of land was in fact gifted by the Greater London Council to a non-profit community group, along with a £1 million loan for them to develop it. 
the process didn't occur smoothly. In the 1970s, there was a lot of pressure to use this 13-acre site for major development in keeping with the changes that we've seen on the South Bank so far. A project designed by Richard Rogers was proposed for a group of 16-storey office blocks with a shopping arcade, the tallest hotel in London and a new footbridge across the Thames. The planned development sparked considerable community protests from the nearby residents who felt disenfranchised. They wanted to see family housing, a park and a continuation of the Riverside Walk on the site. Under normal circumstances, it would be hard to see how the community could stand up against such pressure. However, the politics of the time and land ownership played to the benefit of the residents. A key factor in determining the outcome of the conflict was the Greater London Council election. In the previous administration had been supportive of the development by Rogers, but the new Labour Party administration changed sides and took up the cause of the local community. The GLC owned half the site and this gave it some leverage. They also changed the zoning of the local plan to immediately decrease the commercial value of the land. In 1984, the developers pulled out and sold their half of the site to the GLC. In turn, the GLC then passed the ownership for the site on to the non-profit company set up by community groups. They also provided a £1 million loan. The community was then able to develop the site for their desired uses. There was, however, still a need for money. What the community group had been doing was renting out available open land in their ownership for car parking, but this was only a temporary resource. They included in the project the OXO Tower, a previous electricity generating station that had been later used as a warehouse, but that went disused in the 1970s. The Coin Street community builders decided to rent out the very valuable top floor to a high-end restaurant to cross-subsidize social housing and community-oriented designer workshops and galleries on the lower floors. More recently, a similar cross-subsidization is taking place with a provisional parking space in Dune Street. The sale or letting at less than half the market rents of 236 flats will result in a new leisure facility for all community members, including a swimming pool. Do you think a similar development can be replicated in other areas of the UK or in other countries? Has the market and its relationship to planning changed the context of such community involvement between the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, and now? Stop H, Blackfriars Bridge. Blackfriars Station was constructed in 1886 on the existing Blackfriars Bridge to create a city landmark, as it was the first British railway station to be situated on a bridge over a river. In 2009, Jacobs and Tony Gee partners were commissioned to redesign the station to make it more efficient, both in terms of commuter capacity and emissions control. Even though there were some criticisms over the glass entrance clashing with the Victorian Bridge, the renovation was praised for its sustainable design and construction. It has the largest roof array of solar panels in the UK, providing more than half of the daily energy required. Also, the Thames was used to ship materials during construction so that no storage was needed on site. This helped to remove 2,000 lorries from London's streets. Finally, only one power generator was used during the construction, which reduced air and noise pollution. So some questions to reflect upon. 
One of London's objectives is achieving sustainability. It is often mentioned in the London Plan, in which a whole section is dedicated to it. This specifically mentions sustainable construction as a way to fight climate change. How do you think a city should approach this matter? And furthermore, how else can the river be used as a resource? Stop by, right to buy. There's a great deal of talk that in order to lower housing prices and ease the housing crisis, the UK needs to build around 300,000 homes a year. We have only typically met these numbers during the private housing boom of the late 1930s, when when housing followed the railway lines out of London, and in the post-war period, when the country began to build council housing, or state-owned housing. Falcon Point was just such a building. Completed in the 1970s, it would have served to meet the housing needs of the residents of the London Borough of Southwark. But today, more than 60% of the flats are privately owned, and a one-bedroom flat will set you back at least £700,000. So what happened? In the 1970s, council housing was losing favour amongst some residents, and that's certainly the dominant political discourse at the time. The election of Margaret Thatcher in 1979 brought in her signature policy, the right to buy, which gave council tenants the right to purchase their homes at a discounted rate. This policy began a rapid shift from state-owned and rented housing to home ownership. In the 1970s, roughly half the people were owner-occupiers, 20% were private renters, and a full 30% were council tenants. Housing tenure in England is now roughly 70% owner-occupied, 18% socially rented, and 13% privately rented. The result of this policy, therefore, is mixed. How you view it will depend on your politics and your own reading of the situation. Right to buy represented a big opportunity for some council tenants to own their first home, raising the level of home ownership to 70%. However, it has also resulted in rising social polarisation, a diminishing stock of affordable housing, and arguably higher house prices. So a moment to reflect. Could the current housing crisis have been at least partially avoided had this policy not been implemented? What is the role of the state, the market, society, and the individual in terms of housing? And is housing purely a private good? Stop J, Tate Modern and Neo Bankside. As we've previously discussed, since the Festival of Britain in 1951, entertainment was a key element in the development of the South Bank. The redevelopment of Bankside Power Station by Swiss architects Herzog de Murren gave this purpose a further boost. The power station had been developed by Sir Gilbert Scott in two phases in 1947 and 1963. As early as the 1950s, the plant was already causing increasing air pollution and pressures to close the plant, especially in light of the Clean Air Act of 1956, mounted. Politics and economics allowed the plant to hold on until 1981. The Tate Modern opened in 2000 and gave a boost in terms of tourism to the area. Since its inauguration, other art galleries and tourist activities have opened up nearby. Market pressures have started to rise, with developers interested in building luxury complexes 
in this refurbished piece of land situated right across from St. Paul's Cathedral. Bankside Lofts was the first pioneer private scheme to develop around the Tate, led by the Manhattan Loft Corporation. The well-known architect, Piers Goff, designed the scheme and 120 flats were sold in the late 1990s at prices starting from £800,000 for a studio apartment and £2 million for a three-bedroom flat. This development paved the way for the construction of award-winning flats like Neo Bankside, designed by Richard Rogers. Of interest, the residents of Neo Bankside came into conflict with the Tate when they sought to create an extension to the Tate Modern for a viewing platform. There were objections from residents that the extension would allow patrons of the museum to see into their flats. In the end, the planning inspector found in favour of, of the Tate and the extension that you see here today was built. Reflections. There are two things to consider here. The first is about cities, gentrification and pollution. The architectural critic Rowan Moore describes the Clean Air Act as something that aided the foundations of gentrification as it made central London a more desirable place to be by removing polluting industries and cleaning up the city. Is there a way then to create environmentally equitable places that don't then become socially polarized? And secondly, did the residents of Neo Bankside have a reasonable point about the Tate Modern's extension? Stop K, the Millennium Bridge. You will now go back over the Thames towards St Paul's Cathedral, crossing by the footbridge. This is the Millennium Bridge, which opened in 2000. It was part of a design competition held by the London Borough of Southwark, the Financial Times, and the Royal Institute of British Architects. A consortium of Arab, the engineers, Foster and Partners, the architects, and Sir Anthony Carrow, the sculptor, won the competition. This was the first bridge to be built over the Thames in a hundred years. Typically, bridges across the Thames require an Act of Parliament, but in this instance, permission was granted by licence by the Port Authority of London, and planning permission was then granted by the City of London and the London Borough of Southwark. Please now follow your maps carefully past St Paul's Cathedral and into Paternoster Square. Stop L, Paternoster Square. You are now in Paternoster Square, which has several interesting stories to tell us. The first is about design and taste. Look around you and try to determine what is new and what is original. Are the neoclassical features reproductions? Is there any architecture here that you think is 17th century? The answer is that very much of the development is a pastiche of neoclassical architecture. Generally speaking, architects and heritage planners do not like this space as it tries to reproduce a past style and is therefore fake. However, many people, including famously Prince Charles, find it very pleasing. This tension makes developing in sensitive areas, like here around St Paul's Cathedral, very tricky. The answer to whether or not there is any original architecture is that there is. As a group, try and understand which part of the development dates to 1672. Take a photo of what you think it is. The second interesting issue is that of public space versus privatised public space. The square, though it is open to the public, is private. It's controlled by private security who can close the space as they see fit. 
The most famous moment of this in recent history was the Occupy Movement protests of 2011. The Occupy Movement was worldwide, and in London a group occupied and created camps in many public spaces, which included the steps of St Paul's Cathedral. Paternoster Square was able to close itself to the public and was therefore not occupied. So some things to think about. Really, two questions to ask yourselves. First, how do we deal with issues of taste in terms of design in the public space? And secondly, is there a danger to democracy when public space becomes privatised? You should now be on familiar grounds near to the LSE and the Royal Courts of Justice on the Strand. There are a few things to end on here. First, you will see a strange animal sitting on top of a pillar in the middle of the road. The significance of this is that it marks the boundary between the City of Westminster and the City of London. London is made up of 32 boroughs plus the City of London. Each has its own local government and each makes its territory known in different ways. When you are walking around the city, you should see if you can spot these, as it will tell you when you have crossed from one borough to another. It is also reflective of the relative power each borough has. Despite the highly centralised English planning system, the boroughs have their own local plans and their own powers to grant planning permission. This means that each has some degree of freedom in choosing what it prioritises in its plan. The other interesting fact about the dragon is that it has a connection with Paternoster Square. If you made the right choice when you were there, you will have taken a photo of Temple Bar Gate, which was designed by Sir Christopher Wren. For 200 years, this sat on Fleet Street and marked the gateway to the City of London. It was removed in 1878, as Fleet Street needed to be widened due to heavy traffic on the road. It was dismantled and stored in Farringdon Yard, where it stayed for 10 years. In 1889, Lady Mew, who is described as a banjo-playing barmaid who married a wealthy brewer, decided to buy the gate and have it erected at her Hertfordshire home in a bid to convince Victorian high society of her respectability. In 1976, the Temple Bar Trust was founded with the purpose of bringing the gate back to London. This was finally achieved in 2001 at a cost of just over three million pounds. It was placed at Paternoster Square. It's interesting to think how an historic gate came to be in an entirely new setting amongst a pastiche of classical architecture. So we'll end our walk here. We hope you've enjoyed it, and we hope that it's got you to know London a little bit better and given you some thoughts in terms of planning and the capital.